Well, I don't know about you, but I was blessed with some amazing grandparents. I affectionately call my mom's parents Mama and Papa. And you may remember this back in 2019, my Papa passed away, and I, it, was, it was very difficult because I lost one of my closest friends, and you know, to be able to be surrounded by people from this church to come down and be with my family during that time was absolutely amazing. And I, I miss them dearly, and I think about them all the time. But the last year, my grandmother's moved, my mama's moved from her house in Scott Depot, West Virginia, Taze Valley area, from there to my aunt and uncle's house in Huntington. As she's growing older and needs more care from family, uh, she's moved on to there. So now my family is going through the process of trying to figure out who gets the house. They're getting ready to sell the, the property, to sell the house, which is very strange to me. Because that's, I'm going to drive 64 to Huntington, and I'm always going to look to the left in St. Albans and say, there's Mama and Papa's house. The ranch home with the big red pole building in the back, that will always be their house where we swam in the pool where I was tortured for hours in the blueberry bushes to pick, and then I was given a blueberry cobbler for a reward. That's messed up. Uh, but it's, it's strange. And so as, the, as my mom, her brother, and her sister, and all the grandkids, we've been going through the house just trying to help clear it, clear it out and kind of going around through the rooms and starting to claim, hey, I would kind of like this. And every single family member has different things they would want. You know, that some just want mementos of mama and papa. Some want certain pictures. Uh, my dad's a person who does genealogy, so he wants certain kind of copies of diplomas that he can kind of put online so people can see our family heritage, and that's pretty awesome. Me, on the other hand, I, my papa was my buddy, and all his life he was a master carpenter, and, and I should not be around a wood shop that much, but I love to be around him. I love to be around him. I would love to spend time with him, just watching in amazement and wonder of all the things that he could build. And so when, when we first got the phone call, my mom said, hey, is there anything at the house you'd want? I first said, I would love some of Papa's tools. And I was like, whatever he has, that'd be fantastic. And uh, we went down there a couple weeks ago. We've been twice the last two weeks. The first time we went down, there was a couple things I really wanted. One was their stereo cabinet. It's a beautiful stereo cabinet. And the reason I wanted it was because when we were grandkids, when we were little kids, we would all sit in front of the stereo cabinet for Christmas morning. That's where the presents would be divided. And I'll be honest, for the first like half my life, maybe actually until about five years ago, I didn't even know it was a stereo cabinet. I just thought it was a nice like buffet dresser. Like I don't know what it was. It always had trinkets on top. always had like fitting glass or just different things on there. I never knew the stereo cabinet. But I wanted it because I want to show Sadie one day and Keely, that little dent in the back there matches a dent right here. <laughs> it's special. But... That's not really, that doesn't really speak to the memories of my grandparents that much, other than the memory of sitting on, the, on Christmas morning. But I saw my mom and said, other than his tools, if there's any piece of furniture that he built, I would love to have. If you ever come to our house, uh, my papa restored an old table that he gave to me on, and Katie on our wedding day. That was our wedding present. So if you ever come for a dinner, come for coffee, that's that table he restored. And that's special to me. And I also have a bookshelf downstairs that he built when I was in high school. But there was just one piece of furniture I said, if nobody wants that, I would love to have that. The tools, on the other hand, uh, they were probably 25 years older than me, which, I mean, Patsy, you know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, look, these tools are really old. And my uncle, who's very much a handyman, also said, I'll be honest, these tools are pretty dangerous. I'm like, well, yeah, Papa was missing a finger. No, yeah, really? Like, he's like, no, they're just extremely old. I was like, you know, I may not ever actually use these tools, but I want to walk into my workshop one day and just see his table saw. See some of his tools that I know he spent hours using just so I can feel like his presence is with me. Just so I can kind of have that nostalgia, so I can have that memory and that memorial of who he was and what he meant 
to me. We all have these moments. We all have these mementos or monuments in our life. You know, you've heard Tony Foreman talk about how he has pocket knives that have been passed down to family member to family member. I know Kendrick has some of those as well. Special memories surrounding just a knife. Maybe for you it's a picture. Maybe for you one day, Chad will pass on this bowling trophy to some of his daughters. Yeah? Taylor? They'll look great on your mantle one day with Chad's picture holding it up after he scored 80. I'm just kidding. 80 with bumpers. No. But we all have these moments, these monuments, these memorials speak and call us to remember people, special moments, special milestones in our lives. And throughout history, we see how people have erected monuments to recall past events, people, special opportunities, special moments in life. And humanity needs these items. You need these as an individual because you need to be able to remember. We're very forgetful as people. We're very forgetful of moments in our lives, milestones in our lives. You know, uh, some of you guys pick certain days to get married because it falls on your birthday. I don't know, because you're never going to forget that. I'm just messing with you if you did that. I know of someone in the room that did that, but I'm not picking on you. But, you know, we, we forget things all the time. And the same is true for us in our relationship with Christ. We are so forgetful of all that he's done for us, all of his faithfulness over and over again. We just forget what he's done. But we need to be people who live in continual remembrance of his faithfulness. That's why this morning faithfulness has been a theme over and over again. Well, to kind of convey that message, we're going to jump into two chapters of the book of Joshua. So you can turn to Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 4 to talk about this idea of remembering God's faithfulness. As you turn, just remember that we are not the first ones to be forgetful. We're not the first ones who needed monuments, who needed uh, mementos, who needed special names to recall great events. All throughout the history of humanity, they've been doing this. You go back to the Old Testament time period, just know that they did not have the access to God's word like you and I do. They weren't pulling out the YouVersion Bible app and saying, oh, where did you say that in Isaiah? The scrolls were very sacred texts, and they were kept in the temple where scribes were copying them as much as they could, but it would take a long time to copy. So the word of mouth was a primary way where people would communicate the blessings and promises of God. They would, children and grandchildren would sit at the feet of mom and dad or grandma and grandpa and just listen to the stories of how God delivered his people. Names were changed. City names were changed. Statues were built. Memorials were built. All to convey special events and moments where God showed up in a mighty way. One such event was here in Joshua chapter 3 where they were getting ready to enter into the promised land. But you have to remember that this is 40 years in the wilderness leading up to this point. 40 years they've been waiting for this moment. And actually, it's actually longer than that. You have to go back to the time of Abraham where he said, hey, I'm going to show you the land where your people are going to go. The land that was promised was hundreds of years before this ever took place. But there was a big obstacle at one moment. When Joseph arrives in Egypt and the Hebrew people go in a time of drought and famine, they go to Egypt. And that's where they kind of remain you remember that for 30 years, it was a very prosperous time for the Hebrew people. They were very wealthy. They grew in number. They grew in their identity. Meanwhile, Pharaoh started taking notice of this and said, they're becoming a threat. So he enslaves the Hebrew people. And you know that they were enslaved for 400 years. 400 years they were enslaved in Egypt. And we know the story well, that God raised up a servant named Moses. He said, hey, you're going to be my vessel. You're going to be my primary communicator to go to Pharaoh and demand that my people be let go so they could enter into their promised land. Pharaoh said no repeatedly. And you know that God shows up in a mighty way. He shows massive amounts of strength and, and might as he delivers the 10 plagues. 
all to show who was really in control. And finally, Pharaoh's like, just get out. Just, just leave. And all the Hebrew people, even people who are not of the Hebrew background, even people who were just there, they were being oppressed, left with the people of God. And they were marching towards their promised land. And they find themselves at the bank of the Red Sea where they're, they're kind of boxed into a, a canyon where there's just the sea in front of them, a box canyon behind them, and the people of Egypt now pursuing them as Pharaoh has now changed his mind. And what do they say? They say, have you, were there no graves in Egypt? Have you brought us out here into the wilderness to die? We'd rather die in Egypt. It was better back then, not knowing that God was getting ready to do something that would absolutely blow their minds they saw the sea, and God says to Moses, hey, I want you to go down to the, the banks of the water and hold up your staff. As Moses held up his staff, the sea opened up, and the people of God, not just a few people on a vacation, hundreds of thousands of people marched through on dry land. As the enemies of Egypt seemed to pursue them, the waters came crashing down and washed them all away. A people who were enslaved on one side, now walking into freedom on the other side of the waters. And they were led from that moment to Sinai where they would spend an entire year learning what it would mean to be in covenant with God. God's presence would dwell on the mountaintop. It would consume the mountain. They would see this glory of God resting on the mountaintop. And Moses would walk up. He couldn't come into full contact with God. He'd go and see parts of God, the, the hem of his garment. And he came off the mountain glowing and radiating. It was there in that moment he receives the Ten Commandments where he sees the law of God. And God says to Moses and to his people, hey, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And these commandments that I give to you are to show what it means to be in relationship with me and what it means for me to be in relationship with you. But there's still the promised land before them. So after an entire year of that, they start marching towards the promised land, towards Canaan. But as they start approaching towards Canaan, they see the, the Jordan River, and they send 12 spies who come back with discouraging reports of fear. Ultimately, it led to their disobedience. Because of their disobedience, an entire generation who left Egypt, these adults, were not allowed to enter into the promised land. Moses, their faithful leader, could only stand on the mountain and see the promised land from a distance. He was not allowed to enter into that place that was promised because they were disobedient to the covenant of God. And God punished them by making them wander around the wilderness for 40 years. For 40 years, they wandered. And by the time we get to Joshua, there's only two adults who were alive when they left Egypt, Joshua and Caleb. And they find themselves on the banks of the Jordan River. One more obstacle. One more that they have to navigate, and then they can walk into the, the land that was promised, the land of milk and honey, the land of perfect peace and harmony. This was it. No longer did they have the Spirit of God resting on the mountaintop. Now the Spirit of God was now moving amongst them. No longer was a, a pillar of fire, a pillar of smoke. Now it was in the tabernacle that they were carrying with them. Now it was in the Ark of the Covenant that was leading the way. And we find themselves here at the Jordan River, we see what happens here, starting in verse two, of chapter, verse 2 of chapter 3. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving the orders to the people, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, and the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go. 
since you have, better, you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark, and do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. So Joshua says to the people, I want you to consecrate yourself, set yourself apart, make yourselves whole and holy, because tomorrow God's going to do something absolutely amazing. Do something absolutely amazing. God and all of his power, all his holiness, all of his might is going to do what they could not do themselves. And he says, and before you go, you're not going to the waters. The Ark of the Covenant, where the God's command is there and God's presence is there, will lead you into the water. But don't get too close to it. To stay about 2,000 cubits away is about 1,000 yards. Stay at a distance. Do not go near because that's where God's holiness and mercy and majesty and might rest. And you're not worthy to be near it. It's at this moment that Joshua is exalted by the Lord to be the new leader of Israel. It was at the Red Sea, it was at Sinai that God says, Moses, you're my guy. How will people know that you're my guy? I'm going to tell you, go to the water, hold up your staff and see what happens. And they knew that God was with Moses. And likewise here, he's going to use Joshua to show that God is with Joshua. Now compared to the Red Sea, the Jordan is way easier to navigate, much easier to cross. But it says here it's even at, it's even at flood levels. But even still, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be that big of a deal compared to the Red Sea. But there's too much symbolism to skip over that idea. Because on leaving the bondage of slavery, the people of Egypt, the, people of the Hebrew people when they left Egypt, they entered the waters of the Red Sea as slaves and they came up as a free nation. They entered the waters as slaves, people with no identity, and they came out of the waters now free, now redeemed with a chosen people. Now here, after 40 years of wandering around the desert, no purpose, no identity, no place to call home, they're going to enter the waters of the Jordan and come out with a home and a place to belong and a place to call their own. Look at verse 15 through 17 of chapter 3. Now Jordan is at flood stage, all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up into a heap of great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flow down to the Sea of Arabah was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite of Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all of Israel passed by until the whole nation had completely crossed on dry ground. So no longer is it Moses leading these people. It's no longer Moses just holding up a staff. It's not even Joshua being obedient. Now it's all about God. It's always been about God, but now here, more clearly to the people of God, it's about him. As soon as the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the place that was supposed to be symbolic of his presence, as soon as their feet touched the riverbank, the waters departed and God's presence went into the waters to hold up the stream so they could pass by on dry ground. And in the middle, we find the priests, the Levitical priests, the people who were God's representation to man and man's representation to, to God standing there on behalf of people holding the Ark. And we see Joshua and the military men standing there as the entire nation passed by. 
the beautiful imagery of what we're going to see later in scriptures. You keep going out the Old Testament, we see the development of this idea of the three offices of priest, prophet, and king. Something later that Jesus would fulfill completely. But after all those years, after all those years of wandering around the desert, here they are once again. This nation who was once children, walking across the dry ground of the Red Sea, are now walking across dry ground in the Jordan, into their promised home. In chapter 4, though, we see Joshua sent out 12 men. He sent out 12 men from each tribe to collect a stone from the riverbed. Jump down to verse 4 through 9 of chapter 4. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and he said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of Israelites, as the Lord had said to Joshua, and they carried them over with them to the camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant has stood. And they are there to this day. We're going to come back to this in a moment. Let's go ahead and jump down to verse 16. Command the priest, command the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant law to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, come up and out of the Jordan. And the priest came up out of the river carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground but then the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. On the tenth day, the first month of the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal in the eastern border of Jericho. So the people, hundreds of thousands of people making up the nation of God, the chosen people of God, the armies of God, and the priests walk across this dry ground. They exit the waters of the Jordan on the 10th day, and there's something significant about that idea. On the 10th day of the first month, that first month being Nisan, it's like, what does that even mean? On the, on that, that's a very significant moment in the, when it comes to Passover. On the fourth day, four days before Passover, the sacrificial lamb was set apart. They're set apart for the, the sacrifice that would be made on behalf of the people of God. And you were supposed to keep this lamb for four days until the Passover on the 14th day. So the day they came up out of the water, on that 10th day, was the same day that the sacrificial lamb would be set apart. And it's amazing to see that this is actually 40 years after the very first Passover, almost to the day where they celebrated their exodus, when they celebrated their escape from Egypt, when God came through and provided a way out, as he provided a sacrificial lamb to put the, the, blood, of the door, blood of the lamb on the doorpost so the angel of death would cross over. And now we see 40 years later, this divine moment on what should be their celebration of Passover, as they begin to celebrate and prepare themselves, they are now consecrating themselves for what would be coming next. If you ever examine, uh, if you walk through from Exodus until Joshua, there's actually a lot of beauty in this. And if, you, if you're a literary person, you may have heard the term chiastic structure. 
Chiastic structure is just a literary uh, tool to show when the story mirrors the beginning and the end. And in this context, you actually see it this way. It starts off in Exodus when we see the oppression. Then we see the consecration. Then the Passover. The crossing of the Red Sea. The law given at Sinai. And the hinge, or the middle part, is the wilderness when they're wandering around forever, 40 years. Then it goes back, starts to mirror. The law given at Moab. The crossing of the Jordan. The consecration of themselves. The Passover. And then ultimately, conquest. It's a beauty to look at this literary tool to see. It's actually showing a story of people coming from bondage to freedom, from suffering to glory, from oppression to freedom. And it's in this moment, in this coming from humiliation to their exaltation, they begin to find purpose as a nation, but they also find purpose from what all God has done up until this point. In chapter 4, verse 21 through 24, we see the purpose of this, these stones that God said to build. Verse 21, he said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask the parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us <clears throat> until we crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. This is supposed to be a monumental moment, a pivotal moment in the history of the people of God that they would always remember. These stones were to be a monument that they could look back and say, look how God was faithful from the time we left Egypt to the time we crossed the Jordan, the Red Sea, the, the, the Jordan River. All these things have been pointing to the, the faithfulness and the sovereignty of God. And it wasn't just for them, though. It wasn't just for them to look upon it like, well, that's cool. It's also for their children in the coming generations. So when your children ask you, Dad, Mom, what do those stones mean? You're supposed to remind them, hey, God delivered your great-grandparents out of Egypt. After 400 years of slavery, he delivered them in a miraculous way. And then he led us through the wilderness as he guided us with his presence. Now he, came us to the, he brought us to the Jordan and we thought all hope was lost once again. He split the sea once more. And we walked through on dry ground. That stone represents the faithfulness of God. It's a testimony of himself. But it wasn't just about them and their kids. It's also about the entire nations. This is all supposed to show that the hand of the Lord was on the people of Israel. It was going to strike fear into the nations that they would oppose them. Because if you read Joshua, it gets pretty dark after this. They go into the conquest and it gets a little violent. But look at verse 1 of chapter 5. How is this moment, how do these stones, how does this faithfulness move of God, what does this show to the nations around them? Verse 1, Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan, all the Canaanite kings along the coast, heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they crossed over, their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. God's moving once again showing his faithfulness over and over again, melting the hearts of the people they would oppose. This is a monumental moment of the power of God, showing the nations who he was, showing the nations who he came to love and who he came to serve. But I want you to transition 1,500 years in the future, 1,500 years from Joshua. We find ourselves once again in the Jordan River. There's a man named John you know him as John the Baptist. He's walking into the waters of the Jordan River. 
He's calling upon people to leave their bondage of sin and to repent for the kingdom of God was near. He knew that he was called to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's baptizing people by the hundreds, by the thousands, gaining disciples, all in a message of repentance. But one day, we see this in John chapter 1, verse 29 to 34, one day everything changed. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites. Excuse me, that's the wrong scripture. Let's jump forward. Sorry, 29. 29 to 34. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I, I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave his testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain on the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So John the Baptist says, this is God's chosen one. This is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. This is the better Joshua. This is the better Lear. This is the better servant of God. Of all the thousands of people that John the Baptist baptized, not a single one ever received the Spirit coming down upon them like a dove, except for when Jesus walked into the waters. It's amazing that it was in this moment, in this very riverbed, where the Spirit of God had thousands of years before this entered into the waters and stopped all the water flows so people could enter into their rest, enter into their promised land and their purpose, that the Spirit of God comes down upon the Son of God. The Word became flesh, dwelling among His people in this river. This is a monumental moment that we cannot just skip past. No longer is the Spirit of God leading by fire. No longer is the Spirit of God leading by a cloud of smoke. No longer is the Spirit of God resting on a mountain. No longer in a temple. No longer in an ark of the covenant. Now it's here in the person of Jesus. And he's being baptized by John the Baptist. He's right here with us. This baptism was all about a commission, a monumental commissioning for the ministry that Jesus would lead the next three years. This was the beginning of a mighty work of God over the next few years. See, unlike the waters that were raging towards the Israelites that flowed, now something different was going to happen. If you go throughout the Gospel of John specifically, you can see how John uses Passover as time stamps. And throughout the Gospel of John, you see Passover three different times. The third time is when Jesus comes into Jerusalem for his ultimate death. But it's interesting to see John says this is a sacrificial lamb that's coming. Jesus knows that he is the one who's coming to take away the sins of the world. His ministry has been bringing people sight, giving people the ability to hear, the people ability to walk. He's been forgiving sins. But here he finds himself later coming up upon Passover once again. But this time it was no longer going to be a sacrificial lamb. This time it was going to be himself. He would not enter the waters of baptism. He would not enter the waters of a raging river. No, this time he would stand in the rushing waters of the wrath of God. Stand in our midst, stand before us and receive the wrath and judgment of Almighty God as the sins of God or the sins of man is placed upon his shoulders. 
No longer was it an altar sprinkled with blood. No longer was it just a lamb. Now it was the Son of God being crucified on a cross. And on the darkest day in history, as he hung on that cross with the weight of God's wrath flowing down upon him, as the sins of man was crushing his will to live, he breathes his last. You know the story. We celebrate this not just at Easter. We celebrate this every single day and every single moment as Christians that he did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose up again in glory and in victory and in power. This story of John, the story of Jesus is showing you that Joshua is just a person pointing to the future of Jesus. And it's amazing that the same Hebrew name is Yeshua, which translates Joshua, which we also get Jesus, which means salvation. Here he is, Jesus, the fullness of God's glory upon him, making a way when there was absolutely no way. He entered into the waters of God's wrath and God's judgment and drew a line in the sand and said, no, 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 I will take upon the wrath and I will make a way for dry ground for you and my people to walk into access with the Father. It's absolutely amazing. A way for you and for me to enter into what was promised. I'm not talking about just eternity here. Yes, we are promised, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, eternity, perfect eternity with our Father. But he also promises us stuff now. Heaven on earth, now perfect peace in our Father, in his arms, in his plans, in his purposes. And he's made a way for us to walk into the very presence of God because now we stand redeemed. We stand loved. We stand new because of what Jesus has done on the cross. So we come to communion today. We're going to celebrate communion together. And we have a new monument for us. This new monument that represents something new for the people of God. No longer are we looking to stones on a riverbank. We're not just looking upon a monument to see what happened that day. No, we have something amazing. We're not even looking to a cross anymore. We're not even looking to an empty tomb anymore because neither one of those is where Jesus is. He's no longer on the cross. He's no longer in the grave. Right now he's seated at the right hand of God in heaven. And he's ruling and reigning in our hearts and in our lives. But this table that we come to, whether once a month, twice a month, every day, we come to this table to remember. That's why he said, do all these things in remembrance of me. But as followers of Jesus, we are people who spiritually are forgetful. You wake up one morning, you forget all that God has done for you yesterday. You go throughout your life, and you hit trials after tribulation, you think, I, I don't even know where you are anymore. We forget what he's done. We're not living lives of continual remembrance. Just as those people at the Red Sea, just as the people at the Jordan River, just as the people at, when the Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus, we all need to see memories. We all need to see these moments where we can fixate on them in our mind and say, I remember that moment. I can recall that moment so we can see the mercy and grace and love of Jesus. That's why we gather and worship. That's why we sing the songs that we do. That's why we gather together corporately to encourage one another, to love one another. Ultimately, though, to point every one of us back to him. Hey, when you're going through a mess, we're going to call you back to Jesus. When life feels like it's falling apart, we're going to call you back to Jesus. When everything's going chaotic in your life, we're going to call you back to Jesus. Hey, even when things are great, 
we're going to still point you to Jesus. You cannot forget the faithfulness of God. We have to live in it continually. We need to find ourselves in awe of all that he's done and fall desperately and madly in love with him. That's why we take communion, to do it all in remembrance of him. He gave us these ordinances of bread and wine or juice as a sign of his atoning death, as a monument of the majesty and faithfulness of grace and love and mercy of God. As he hung upon the cross, his blood purifying us, his body being broken to redeem us. We need to give ourselves over to that love, be amazed by it and love him with the same fervor as he loves us. We need to be constantly reminded, though, also of his continual, listen, continual victory. He has secured everything when he rose up out of the grave. He has the keys, sin and death in his hands. No longer does it have control over you. Now you have victory because of him. And you can have victory every single day, not because of you, but because of him. He's accomplished what you and I could not. We could not cross that riverbed into his presence. We could not cross this world and this life into his presence on our own. We needed someone to go before us and the presence of God has gone before us in the person of Jesus and has made a way. So we take this meal to revisit the goodness of Jesus, to recall together all that he's done. But listen, we must also remember there's a purpose in all of this. One day, your kids are going to ask you, hey, mom, dad, why do we go to church? Mom, dad, hey, what is that cross about? Mom, dad, why do we take communion? Why are you reading your Bible? Don't pass off that responsibility to anyone else. Those moments are designed by God to show amazing love to your kids and to your grandkids. And it's now an opportunity for you to say, God's done amazing things. If you want to go back all the way to Exodus, he's made a way. For the Jordan, he's made a way. For David, he made a way. For the prophets, he made a way. For the, for the Messiah, he prepared the way. And Messiah came and made a way for all of us, including you. Your first response might be to say, well, I don't have a testimony. My testimony is not very powerful. If your testimony is about you, it's not powerful at all. It's the honest truth. If you're looking to build up a testimony for yourself, there's no power in that. We have a power in Jesus. Our testimony should always be about him. Moses did nothing. He was obedient. Joshua did nothing. He was obedient. All of us are only called to be obedient and follow faithfully after the one who's going to do everything for us. And there's no power against the name of Jesus. You have an amazing testimony right now just because you have a faithful and loving God. And we now see the purpose, though, of the cross, the empty tomb, the Red Sea, the Jordan, that we also may display, as God's displaying right now, how amazing he is. I encourage you later to go read chapter 1 of Romans, that God has made known through the creation of the world his attributes, his divine character, through what has been made and what can be seen. In creation, right now, all the world, even you, God is doing amazing work that says he's awesome. He's amazing. He's worth following. That's the purpose of all these monuments, all these mementos, all these, just to show what God has done and show his strength to the nations. That's a special moment. 
special monument, a special thing to recall. This table represents where dry ground was provided once again for you and for me to cross over into the arms of our Father. So as you take this bread this morning, know that this is so much more than a wafer, so much more than just a piece of bread. This is symbolic of the body of Christ that was broken for you because you were bought with a price. It was the price that was God's son. He did this all for you. Would you eat this in remembrance of him? And likewise, we know that he took this cup of juice, cup of wine. He says, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember this because this is going to be symbolic of my blood that's going to come out of me. That's going to purify you, to make you new. You already belong to me, but I want you to redeem you. He's going to make you new with his blood as it comes over your life and washes you clean. Would you drink this in remembrance of him?